This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. PMC, it, it is time to start a new show. How excited are you? Give me your give me your hype level. I am I am incredibly excited. I am bursting from the seams with excitement <laughs> with cotton. Specifically cotton. Yes, if you couldn't tell by that very cryptic clue, we are covering Planet With for the next month, month and a half or so. And we are not alone. We are joined. Oh, by the way, I am Stephen Hero, and we are joined by Caitlin Moore, um, writer and editor at Anime Feminist, and a reviewer at Anime News Network. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for welcoming me. Happy to be here. It's this your has been a long time coming. I know. I was just going to say that the last time. So we've podcasted before on the old podcast, but that was over two years ago. That was like at the beginning of the pandemic, and now here we are. Still not done with the pandemic, but two years later. <laughs> and of course you guessed it on our promare episode way back when but introduce mm-hmm. yourself tell the listeners who you are you have a very impressive resume and you're an all-around excellent twitter follower so if you're not following caitlin on twitter make sure you do that and you can do that at all soon underscore no dare um so i am one of the founding members of anime feminist uh currently the part owner and an editor and a writer for the website, uh, which, um, if you haven't heard of Anime Feminist, it's pretty much what it says on the label. Um, it is discussing anime and other forms of Japanese pop culture through a feminist lens. So we do seasonal coverage, like first episode reviews, podcasts, like at the mid-season, at the end of the season. but. The real meat of the series or of the uh, blog is our articles. We're not just a review site. Don't call us a review site. I will get angry at you. <laughs> but if you want to read my reviews, you can find a lot of what I've written on Anime News Network. I have reviewed other shows that I will start bothering PMC and Steven to cover, such as uh, Stelvia there. And yeah, in I'm a preschool teacher and normal person, you know, outside of writing about anime. Shout outs to all my fellow educators out there. I love having a fellow teacher on the podcast. <laughs> I, I feel like this podcast is sometimes 50% educators at least, which honestly I'm fine with. You know, it's it, it's always a good time. I don't Speaking of recommending shows to us, Caitlin, so you recommended Planet With very passionately probably two years ago, and we're finally getting around to it. But you were on the ground floor for the show back in 2000, was it 2018? That sounds right, yeah. Something like that. So how did you come upon it? Did you know about it beforehand? I watched it, no. So I had heard of Satoshi Mizukami, but I wasn't familiar with any of his work. I had never read any of it before. And the first episode came out and everyone saw Sensei and was like, what? is this and i don't remember exactly what it was that got me watching it um but i watched it as it aired 
and I loved it, and I told everyone who would possibly listen to me to watch it, um, because I just fell in love with it. Maybe not from the first episode, because the first episode was wild, but I think the second episode was what really pulled me in. And we've been meaning to get around to it. it we PMC had planned at the end of the summer to do Planet With. It wasn't the Disco Tech announcement. We were taken by surprise when Disco Tech announced the Blu-ray release. A happy, a happy surprise, um, but surprise nonetheless. A few more days. And I'm very excited. I ordered my, I ordered two copies in the other day. I hope to get them sometime by the end of the month. Yeah, thankfully, one of the better things that we willed into existence. Um, I almost as a follow-up to our, our opening Planet With episode, one of the manga that we were hoping would get printed did get a printing announcement. <laughs> Steven is recoiling visibly. Yeah, Tokyo Pop was announced to be licensing Sengoku Yoko. Yeah. It's a monkey paw situation right there. <sighs> so, Caitlin, what's your history with Mecca? So, you, you're a fan of Planet With. I know a few shows you've mentioned in the past. We podcasted about Promare. I, I'm guessing you're not the biggest fan of the genre, but you do have some history with some shared shows with PMC and I. Yes. Well, I am not the person who's going to seek out Mecca. I'm not going to be like, all right, a Mecca show. But I have kind of had to accept the fact that I really do enjoy a lot of Mecca series. Um, I watched Gundam Wing on tv back when i was a little 12 year old over 20 years ago (laughs) time flies and i i'm trying to think of like what my history is i the thing is that i have um been in relationships with big mecha fans (laughs) i had an ex-boyfriend who insisted that i watch giant robo which i am now watching with my husband nice um my now husband made me watch Code Geass fairly early into our relationship. Personally, I think a lot of Mecca that's coming out today is has been really, really interesting and kind of playing with the format and the themes. There's Planet With, which, I mean, Mecca has always been a fairly diverse genre, um, but I'm really sort of enjoying like the post-2010 Mecca, Mm. uh, Planet With, Back Arrow. um, I haven't watched Grand Belm, but I I fully intend to someday. You know, it's one of those backlog series. There's so much interesting stuff coming out right now, and a lot of people will tell you that Mecca is dead, but it's not. They're just, people aren't watching what's coming out right now. People saying Mecca is dead feels to me like on the same same wavelength as the people who who evaluate a game based on its concurrent player player numbers, which is just mm. like like sure it's not you know it's not setting the world on fire, but like it's live and it you know and it's got meaning. Uh, it's it's like uh, someone who tried to convince me that um, AI the Somnium Files sold four thousand copies when that's what it sold for game systems in its first week but because it didn't sell immediately it was a flop kind of kind of makes me think of that like Mm -hmm. just because the numbers aren't huge by your metrics doesn't mean that it's not there and it's not doing something interesting 
Yeah, and I think PMC can definitely agree with that because he's usually streaming the most obscure shit imaginable that maybe a hundred other people bought box copies of fifteen years ago. But I think what's important too is that it's old and new, right? Like that stuff it exists way back when. But you know, just recently I was running through entries for a mecha themed game jam, and uh, and there were lots of interesting ideas, like. You know, if you're familiar with Papers, Please, there was a Schematics, Please, where you have to check the mecha schematics to make sure that people don't <laughs> die on missions. So people are having interesting thoughts about mecha still. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So I think it's time to jump into the proverbial cat mecha. Now, usually at this point, I ask PMC to read the back of some old-ass VHS tape to unearth some forgotten about some episode summary. But of course, Planet With isn't that old, so we cannot rely on any dank-ass VHS release. But we can uh, consult Crunchyroll, who did, did provide us with a very short but sometimes very good summaries. So, PMC, hit us with the Episode 1 summary. Episode 1. Soya is an ordinary boy with one problem. He's lost his memories and lives with a giant cat and a maid. To make matters worse, his city is under attack by a giant alien craft and it doesn't come in peace. It comes in peas. It's very appropriate that you of all people read that summary PMC because you are a fan of puns. I, I love that. <laughs> the peas, the whole God. peas joke. I mean, there's a lot of good humor we'll talk about, but like the peas joke does rule. <laughs> and it's a great bit of translation too, because it is a, we can get into mm-hmm. it later, but it is, it, it is a, it's a very clever little bit of translation there. So episode one, light seven flashes. We open on a blue haired, blue haired teenager. We, we don't know the name of who abruptly wakes up dreaming about a dragon raining down hellfire on a smoldering city. Consulting his book on Oniromancy, which he happens to keep next to his bed, he learns that dragons signify change and imply good luck. Before he has time to interpret his dream further, our protagonist, who we learn is named Soya, is greeted by Ginko, his green-haired caretaker. They sit down for breakfast with Sensei, a large anthropomorphic cat. So a lot of the chatter I heard about Planet With before I even started up episode one is that it's a very bizarre show, and it doesn't really explain any of its bizarreness, which I really appreciate it. Like, as a storyteller, and this is present in his manga, too, Mizukami shows a lot of restraint, restraint and confidence when it comes to storytelling. Like, we don't need any ham-fisted reason why there's a talking cat or why a girl in a maid outfit is caring for a boy who she seems the same age of. Um, that's We can just take that at face value and keep moving, and I really do appreciate that, because if this anime had come out 15 years in the past, I could imagine a seven-episode arc explaining the origin stories of these characters. And we'll get some background, of course, but not at the beginning. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this the other day, I'm because I'm re-watching Irresponsible Captain Tyler, which is a great... 26 episode 90s series and i really do miss in a lot of cases that sort of more relaxed pacing but one of the things that i really appreciate about planet with is its economy of storytelling um mizukami doesn't feel the need to explain all of this stuff because there is no explanation that is going to make it any less bizarre that there is a giant cat that eats heads of whole heads of lettuce. Uh, 
you know so why why sit there and explain it it can all come later yeah i also think this is to me like a really good example you know i've been telling myself i don't say efficiency too many times because i feel like that's a word i heard a lot approaching this series but i do want to point out probably a lot from me (laughs) <laughs> I mean, a lot from everyone. I, I, I can't. I feel like anyone that I've talked to has seen it. Has definitely has definitely mentioned it. The thing I wanted to point out was that the uh, that like this is, I think, a situation where we have a lot of like stock archetypes that aren't necessarily uh, novel on their own. But it's a great deployment of those archetypes to get you up to speed, right? Like the efficiency isn't just from you know as the story progresses. It is also right from the get go. It is relying on things that will get you immediately to the starting line without having to do you know any heavy exposition, uh, which is which is great. Like it's a it's a thing for me where I'm pointing out like yeah, it's familiar elements and cool. I'm here now. I understand it, or at least I understand what I'm meant to understand. Of course, some things are still a mystery. Yeah, yeah. Mizukami's playing with a lot of anime tropes here. Like we have the protagonist who's suffering from amnesia. We have a bubbly class rep. You know, of course, general teenage angst, and like I, I wonder at the beginning, having read Spirit Circle and a few of his other works, like how he is going to subvert them as the show goes on. And we'll see in the first two episodes, he subverts a lot of those tropes, um, which is a lot of fun as a viewer. Actually, it's funny that we talked about efficiency in storytelling because last time we talked to Caitlin about anime, it was Promare, and I think I mentioned that you know I could imagine a twenty-six episode show like diving into the backstories of all these firefighters, and of course, in that I don't know ninety or a two-hour long movie we don't get any of that just jumps gets right to the chase and there's a give and take with that like well, i'll talk about later how i would i can imagine a world in which like, i would like a slower a slower version of planet with and maybe that's what the manga provides but I, i'm very happy with just how quickly this first episode moves so i think the the special thing is that 13 12 to 13 episode series feel rushed to in a lot of cases because they're trying to cram in so much information but with planet with like you guys said there was a confidence mizukami knows exactly what needs to be explained which is not very much and he has a lot of faith in the that the viewer will be able to keep up and will not be confused and he does make a little bit of use of anime tropes, but I don't think it's as heavy as it is, as you guys are saying. If we're talking genre tropes, it's mostly in the like episodes after this, which we'll talk about later. Um, and then it's more tokusatsu tropes than mm. anime tropes. That's a very good point. I, I had a thought and it completely left my mind, so I'm going to keep moving with the summary. Zoya says goodbye to Sensei and Ginko before walking to school as a peaceful Tanaka track plays. Then we cut to the opening theme song, One Unit, by Minami. Um... Since it's the first time it plays, I gotta ask, how do you feel about Planet Width's opening theme? PMC, I'll throw it to you. 
I feel like I always have to pass on this the first time around for whatever it is, like whatever, uh, I, I don't know, whatever a common strand you would pull on with anime OPs, but they almost never hook me initially. And then it's, it's only much later where I'm like, actually, you know what? Colors is an all time banger and I will never forget it. Um, the only exception to that rule <laughs> is the razor flag from iron blooded orphans, which was, I knew right away. That was the best. I'm a little down on it. So I want to see what Caitlin, what do you think about it? I honestly, if you started playing it for me now, I would be like, what is that from? <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not memorable. There's really nothing about it that stands out from other anime songs. It's probably the most forgettable thing about the series. Um, it's, it's very standard format. Um, just the other day, I was reading an interview with the director of Execution of Her- Executioner and Her Way of Life. Excellent series. Not Mecca, but highly recommended. And he was talking about how he wanted to make a memorable opening by avoiding, oh, you get all the characters jumping up one at a time and you see their appeal. Then, you know, you see them going into battle together. And that's exactly what Planet With's opening is. It's just it's not interesting it's got the standard structure of all of the anime songs like it's it's just it's low effort yeah i completely agree like i don't feel strongly either way about minami's song maybe the lyrics really elevate it but to me it's very perfunctory like it's going through the motions of a generic anime op and the visuals too that are paired with the piece are equally as predictable like it's just going through the motions it's not something like Colors where I feel compelled to not only listen to each time and watch, but to grab everyone around me in my household and tell them to watch it too. Is Colors the Kogias opening? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, the the really iconic one. Chibin whoa. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Colors by Flo. Yeah. It's one of those things I remember until my, my last <laughs> breath. Mm-hmm. There's also a really cursed edit of it from early 2020 that was riffing on the uh, the then ascendant Bernie Sanders campaign that also oh, like, ex- right. extra baked it into my memory forever. So oh, it's I a little cursed to go back to. Chris, on February 2020, didn't know what the rest of 2020 would be. Oh, man. On that note, <laughs> Soya runs into the class rep, Nozomi Takamag... Oh, I'm making the same mistake as the characters do. <laughs> Takamagahara, who asks how his first two weeks at school have been going. Afterwards, he yawns through class and then bemoans the lack of meat in his packed lunch. Nozomi keeps him company during lunch. The two talk about difficulty of what well, the difficulty of making friends in a new school. This show has so many like understated, excellent comedic bits so far. I'm, we only, I've only watched two episodes, and I'm saying this, but like the whole bit around the name, I I assume is you know a funny bit but like also it's definitely an extra funny bit as uh you know someone who is not familiar with japanese names as much and so it's like what was her name again i can't help help me out and now i can almost hear in my head the actress yelling it like at you know at uh so yeah there's like six syllables is really long (laughs) like it's like one or two extra syllables that really makes it uh <laughs> makes it tough for uh people to remember uh regardless of of what language they speak. Mm-hmm. I'm now getting stressed because I, 
I'm sure Caitlin can sympathize with me here. I'm I'm terrible with names, period. I mispronounce names constantly on this podcast. But the first week of school, keeping those names, you know, under like keeping the track of all the names, but also pronouncing all the names right, um, I struggle with in that first week, sometimes even longer. And I'm getting like flashbacks to previous years, and I'm like anxiety is curdling in my stomach thinking about the approaching school year. Oh, for me, it's parent names. Ooh, parent kid names. Fine. Parent names. Nope. That takes. <laughs> I there are still parents that, especially when like all of the moms are skinny and blonde mm. and have like the same blue eyes and it's like which blonde mom are you? <laughs> which child do you go with? Yeah, that's even and harder. And all the dads are all the dads are scruffy tech guys. <laughs> Yes, I work at a preschool in Seattle. Sounds like it. Yeah. I, I sometimes chide PMC for talking about the weather, but how rainy is it in Seattle? It's like, <sighs> is it like a, a, like a stereotypical episode of Frasier? Like, on an average seven-day week, how many of the days of the week is it raining? It depends on the time of year. Uh, we had a very long, rainy winter. It was cold and rainy until um, June this year. But we've got then since then we've had like two rain showers. It's very it's very dry and it's it's very hot and our homes are made to trap heat and usually don't have air conditioning and I it's gonna be ninety degrees again this week and I want to die. I'm so sorry. <sighs> I feel like we have guests from across the world. I'm flashbacking to when we had Thal on the podcast who's in the UK and of course the UK is baking right now. I think everywhere is baking right now. Rivers are drying up. This is when PMC tells me we have like six minutes to live before <laughs> as the climate uh, destroys in front of us. Well, you know, hopefully we can b- believe in, in an evolution of love as opposed to whatever it is we're all doing right now. Excellent segue, my friend. So Soya reveals that he got into a car accident when he's talking to Nozomi, which not only caused his memory loss, but also the death of his parents. Afterwards, he was taken in by, and these are his words, some weirdos. Now, listeners might remember that I phased out of anime in my late teens, early 20s. So I'm, I'm currently like basically in my mid-30s at this point. I'm holding on to age 33 to say that I'm still in my early 30s. Um, but oh. soon I'll be 34 and then in my mid-30s officially. But when we started off the podcast a few years back, or I guess four years ago at this point, I started getting back into anime again. But during my heyday, when I was in high school, early college, I was watching a lot of slice of life shows, comedy shows, shows like Harikano, Kodomo no Omocha, which of course take place in school settings. So I feel like a sense of nostalgia when I'm watching this. Like these quiet scenes with Soyo walking along to school or sleepily looking out his classroom window evoke some nostalgia for me. I have a, a keen emotional response to it. And I don't want to be the guy like the I compare all jazz to Persona 5 guy. But because I played Persona 3 while I was still in high school, for some reason, I always think back to my late teens playing Persona 3 and also studying for classes in my own, you know, for my own high school reasons. Well, I was well into my 20s the first time I played a Persona game, though. So it doesn't. No, um, I think that is a very deliberate effect. Um, it's supposed to evoke a sense of everyday peace that Soya is experiencing um, even 
you know, he feels like it's better not to remember. It's a form of escape. It's, I don't want to spoil things, but it is kind of hinting that his life before was not very idyllic, right? Um, I don't know if you got that sense, but it is, yeah, it's very intentional that he is, even though his life is strange, very strange, he he lives with a maid and a giant cat with human teeth that force him to be a vegetarian. <laughs> it is supposed to give this source sense of ordinariness that is soon shattered. My only observation, this is a very, very boring observation, but I guess because I'm, I don't know, I have protocol break, baked into my brains. I always wonder, how do these kids get on the roofs? I don't know if that's actually a thing, <laughs> but I, it bothers me every time. Every Persona game I've played, uh, you know, every every anime of a school scene, they're always on the roof, and I do not know wow, they have access to the roof. I think, yeah, I think it's a, a very romanticized trope. Because I think usually the roofs are locked and without super easy access up there, um, especially after when they have had issues with students jumping off. That's why there's they're always fenced mm -hmm, too, right? Right. Um, mm. But I I think it's just a very like kind of romanticized imagery. Maybe uh, the people who who were making anime for a long time did have access to the roof and it just sort of got passed on whether or not the people who high school students still no. uh, can do that i mean i think i think you and i can can attest to the lore around inappropriate accessing to the roof of, of, a, of a school building um from our from our own experience in our alma mater <laughs> so and, and it, i never got on the roof myself but I heard the lore, just as just as you said. What you heard, lore? T lore told you about it. Yes, also that. <laughs> <laughs> Very deep inside joke. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just nod quietly from the sidelines. <laughs> well, Stephen, you you um, know you know who that is. I'm gonna I'm gonna just tell you real quick here. Uh, you you actually know who that is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do know yep. who that is. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, I can't really speak. Um, I get, yeah. I mean, as a high schooler, I did not have access to my own roof, my own high school roof. And as a high school teacher now, I guess I could get on the roof if I wanted to. It would be nowhere near as romantic as this scene, though. Oh, you know what? I actually have an important roof story, school roof story. Okay. In my high school, there was a big incident where uh, I think it was the previous year of graduating students managed to uh, to take the keys off of a faculty member who was a parent of a member of that class uh, and then put all of the cafeteria furniture on the roof of the cafeteria uh, and no one noticed until the morning. Allegedly, <laughs> the, school pe the school people said this like somehow destroyed the roof or, the, or the, the cafeteria furniture. I don't trust the people who run that school, so I don't really believe them. Maybe they're right, though. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong to be distrustful. Uh, but still, pretty classic goof. You know what? Score one for the kids. <laughs> so a message blares over the loudspeakers, interrupting Soya's afternoon daydreaming. So I have a funniest story uh, regarding announcements made over loudspeakers in Japan. Uh, my wife and I were traveling Japan in the summer of 2019 for our honeymoon. My wife, I guess this isn't so funny, but my wife has a deadly fear of tsunamis, among 
other things like killer whales. And every new city we arrived at, she'd be planning her escape in the event of a catastrophe. And like, like actually doing the planning and like conferencing with me about what to do, like keep the car backed out of the driveway and planning out which route, uh, like roads she would take to get like on, on higher ground. Uh, meanwhile, I was playing Persona Q2 at the time on my 3DS, so I was just nodding, I'm, I'm sure, absentmindedly. And early on our trip, we were in Yakushima, which is an island off the coast of southern Japan. Um, beautiful, luscious Yakushima. forest. I love it so much. My wife did not love it. If, if, if I had my wife uh, like to the side on the webcam, she would just be like nodding, like uh, shaking her head vigorously. Um, she did not enjoy herself in Yakushima. For those of you who need like a visual picture, just think of Princess Mononoke because they base the, the forest in that film on uh, the forest in Yakushima. But we were chilling. We were at an Airbnb. We were chilling in our house. And a few announcements were made in succession over the loudspeaker, which filled my wife with dread. So she frantically looked up on her phone like, what's the deal with loudspeakers in Japan? And we had no idea what they were saying, of course. But we later learned that it was probably something very routine, like like the afternoon ferry is delayed an hour, or like someone needs to pick up Bob from the supermarket, and un- and unfortunately there was no tsunami. But I think of that any time a message is made over loudspeakers, which happens quite frequently in towns because um, I don't know it's established tradition, I suppose. Election season in Japan, which is much shorter than in the U.S., because the U.S. feels like it's always an election season. It's like a couple of weeks at a time in Japan. It's constant, constant vans driving around, making campaign, you know, announcements through their loudspeakers. It's incredibly annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now flashing back to Persona 5 with that, the Bernie Sanders character, the quasi, you know, the Bernie Sanders character with quotes around (laughs) that. Yeah, that's, that's, Yeah. That's what a lot of it is like. So this announcement, though, was anything but routine. An unidentified flying object is making its way to Sorimisaka City. All cities are ordered to all citizens are ordered to evacuate. Now this piques Soya's curiosity, but Nozomi drags him off to safe, safety. Now I, I love the trappings of kaiju films. Caitlin, you mentioned you're watching Giant Robo, like when. PMC and I were podcasting about Giant Robo. He famously was a little lukewarm on episode three. I was very warm on it. It kind of plays out like a kaiju episode. So I'm all in for this. How far are you into Giant Robo? Uh, we just finished episode four. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a tough one. You know, Yoshi and uh, I'm just going to call mm. him Yoshi's husband. Yeah. That that that's who he is to me because Yoshi is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they really got their time to shine in that episode. Um, so it was a, it, it was a, it's a very powerful episode. Yeah, what is his name? I'm just thinking of him with a huge hole in his stomach. Spoiler, sorry for Giant Robo. I was trying not to. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine most of our listeners have seen it, hopefully. If not, then you could add me on Twitter, of, feel free. Well, it's not streaming. Um, but I kind of want to try to do like Yoshi and and her husband couples mm. cosplay. That would be a dope cosplay. PMC, we should cosplay so, as something. We, yeah, I mean, you want to <laughs> you uh, you want to do the big cat with human teeth? We could do a big cat. Yeah, just two senseis walking around okay. a con. <laughs> so one of our, you know, one of you is sensei, one of you is ginkgo. Mm-hmm. True. Any bald character, I could do very easily. 
Now, the UFO in question is a 100-plus meter floating teddy bear with human ears jutting out of its sides and a horrific array of human hands swaying under its torso. JSDF fighter pilots, or what I assume are JSDF fighter pilots, scramble to intercept, but their missiles, they do nothing. I'm not sure. I I actually looked into this because we talked about the mechanical designers on our history episode, and I couldn't really confirm because there are like no interviews on Planet With online for the most part. I couldn't confirm who designed the aliens, whether it was Azuna or Uetsu or maybe Mizukami himself. But whatever the case is, I dig them. I I really like peas for a lot of reasons, which is a misspelling of peas. Yeah, so, okay, I can talk about this now. Um, I... Don't know the exact the exact thing because my kanji is terrible. Mm. But basically, um, peace has the there's another word that has a very similar um, kanji. Just like in one, the line is at an angle, and in one, the line is flat. And they basically just used the wrong one, so it's just <laughs> slightly poor, like. Slightly drawn off, um, easy mistake to make, uh, kanji, which they they changed into peas instead of peace. It was very clever. We talk a lot about comedic timing when it comes to voice performances, but I don't think enough credit is given to comedic timing when it comes to, like, subtitle deployment. Because when it makes that immediate cut to peas and with the huge, with the huge ass font, that's kind of highlighted peas. I was laughing. And I, I, we'll talk about this later. I usually kind of bounce off humor in anime, but I was laughing a lot during these uh, two, first two episodes. I, I rarely laugh <laughs> intentionally um, with shows that we're covering on Giant Robot FM, but I was in stitches for a lot of these bits. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of unclear to the extent to which, like, I guess, like how much, how much of a, a of a screw up this is, you know, by by the aliens. Like, what you know, what are their true intentions? Of course, we'll get into the nebula and and all that. But I just love so much that you know, it's like, oh my god, there's a you know a giant weapon coming in from the sea, and that might conjure <laughs> the visions of Godzilla or an angel from Ava or you know any one of those things. And it's just it's this goofy like toy story reject clown coming in from from overseas with peas on its forehead it's it so does good look like something that sid would have in his yeah, collection absolutely i also got attack on titan vibes which maybe was a source of inspiration it feels appropriately alien and i do like the it being made of cotton is such a nice distinctive touch uh big ups from steven hero in that regard now, the fighter pilots are nearing Pease, and when one of them gets into proximity with Pease, um, he has a vision of his wife and daughter and uh, suddenly announces that they must abort the mission and return home. So at this point, when I was taking notes, it appeared to me and, uh, that these aliens can manipulate the emotions of human beings using, using visions, which will probably, knowing Mizukami, will probably result in some devastating and poignant scenes in future episodes. Um, when I was reading Spirit Circle, I noticed that he's particularly adept when it comes to short-form storytelling, probably more so than any other mangaka I've encountered. Like, Spirit Circle was full of vignettes that pack emotional wallops in just a few panels, and at least from the manga I've read, not every, not all of his peers are capable of that. Yeah, I, lo- I what I really enjoy about 
that bit is you could tell so much from so little, like you were saying, because you can tell that is not something that's really happening. The the color palette gives it this very kind of melancholy cast and the doc the wife saying that they thank God we found a good doctor. It's like Oh, his daughter died in reality. Like, this is a vision of the future that he wanted. And somehow seeing that has robbed him of his desire to fight against this alien. And we get three of these visions over the course of these two episodes. And I will say that each of the three affected me emotionally, even though I have no connection with this fighter pilot. And it's it's only on screen for maybe 60 seconds. Like I was I was moved by it. And I think that's a testament to Mizukami's writing and also the skill of the animators, too. Hmm. Yeah. Um. And, and you know that Mizukami storyboarded the hmm. series in addition yeah. to writing it. Um. So he had a lot of creative control. Yeah, no, it was wonderfully executed by everyone involved uh, in that scene. You know, you know um, animation is a collaborative medium, and as we are learning from the current Lucifer and Biscuit Hammer adaptation, the best script in the world will fail if the visual storytelling isn't there, and vice versa. Have you checked that out, Caitlin? Because, uh, we were talking to Adam Westcott last time, and the um, the internet chapter, despite him being a really big fan of Biscuit Hammer, um, kind of kept him away. I'm curious if, if you've seen it. I haven't seen it myself. Uh, few episodes. I think I've watched three. Okay. It's ugly. It's a really ugly show. There's a lot of scenes that take place in the sunset, and everything looks like it was colored using the same palette as the baby food aisle at the grocery store. <laughs> like, that's them trying to do sunset colors, and it's all just kind of like orange and brown and brownish orange. Mm. Um, it's just, and like, the action's really stiff. It's it's an ugly show, and it absolutely takes away from from the story. And I think it's, I mean, it's its a much more flawed adaptation than Spirit Circle for a lot of reasons. Um, there's a lot of components to why it's not succeeding as well. But yeah, no, it's its not good. It's not a good adaptation, unfortunately, which bums me out because I was really excited to watch it. Same. I, I do really want to track down uh, the manga. So if anyone can reprint it, please. And thank you. I, I really want yeah, to get same. hands on it. I'd buy it. Or, Same or for I, Spirit Circle, honestly. That is out of print. Yeah, we were talking to Megan about that, too. I snagged them. Right when we restarted the podcast, I was like, we were PMC and I were in a room bouncing ideas off each other. And we're like, yes, we got to get to Planet With. And I, as like a, a nice Christmas present for myself, went, all right, I'm going to buy all six volumes of Spirit Circle in case we do podcast about it. And fortunately, that was a wise investment because they went right out of print like a few months later. Yeah, I have a friend who had the whole set and their house burned down. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That sucks. I often have trouble transitioning from a comment like that to <laughs> a summary. Yeah, piece. sorry about that. <laughs> that was a bummer. Uh, he's okay. He's Good. safe. But, you know, that, that was honestly one of the things that he was the most broken up about losing. Mm. Now, a group of seven defenders, whom Soya recognizes from his dream, appear on the coastline. After looking at the horizon defiantly, they jump into action and their respective mechs to defeat Pease. 
Ginko calls Soya and tells him to go outside. She tells a skeptical and resistant Soya that it's his job to take out those seven superheroes. Meanwhile, Pease repulses the superhero squad as they scramble to find a weak spot, which, it turns out, is on the back of its head. One of the human defenders, Hideo, flies off Death Star trench run style to exploit this vulnerability. There's also a scene with Sensei here that I would be remiss to point out. Um, (laughs) He's looking at some action figures on a shelf. He picks up a figurine of a red-caped girl who turns out is, speaking of Biscuit Hammer, is Asahina Samidare, who is one of the main characters from Biscuit Hammer. I have not read Biscuit Hammer, so I really can't speak more critically or eloquently on the subject. Um, Ginko gets all pervy with the action figure. Wait, you mean, I wonder... Oh, is it Sensei? I'm oh, sorry, Sensei. Yeah. This is what happens when uh, I make a typo on my notes. Sensei <laughs> gets all pervy with the action figure. Ginko is not in the room at the time. I, I do wonder if Sensei is kind of a stand-in for Mizukami, because sometimes during interviews he gets a little, he gets a little pervy himself. I kind of wonder if it's kind of an in-joke because um, Lucifer and the Biscuit Hammer is his first major work, and he had a lot of kind of more standard shonen storytelling mm. than that he's kind of shed over the years, but it had a lot of panty shots. Yeah. I, so I did, I haven't read, I haven't read basically any of Biscuit Hammer, but I did take a look at the first few pages and yep, that was my takeaway is I was hit with panty shots in the first like five pages. The anime does not have the panty shots. And that's good. And, and uh, Spirit Circle uh, basically had zero and uh, same with, I, I started reading a, uh, World and Solte, which is his newest series, in Volume One. Oh yeah, I got the first volume of that. I need to read it. It's it's very good. Uh, it's it's not as experimental as some of his other works, like right up right off the jump. Um, but it's still very good. So so Hideo is in Pisa's core, and he experiences while in its core a similarly emotionally devastating vision as did the pilot from before. In it, he watches helpless as his house burns with his mother inside. It then time skips to a fictional future where Hideo, now a firefighter, apologizes for not being able to save her. So I think this is textbook Mizukami. He often in his works creates a tragic backstory for one of his characters. In this case, it would be Hideo losing his mother at a young age. And then he provides, through his storytelling, a means of breaking the cycle of despair that results from that tragic incident. In this case, his mother saying, I forgive you, which I I resonated with immensely. So I don't know if you noticed sort of the common thread between um, his and um, the fighter pilots, but they're about this sense of loss and regret and the vision it is offering them peace, not like world peace, but personal peace by saying, I can give you this. And so the fighter pilot doesn't fight it and takes off and but uh torai does um and he the i forgive you shatters and he gets back and i think the conceit of these illusions works on multiple levels like you just pointed out because not only do they function as ways to tell very emotional stories but they also serve as very effective weapons like it would be very tempting to simply give up the fight and live in one of these illusions forever I'm a big fan. I'm a big Star Trek Generations apologist, which for 
If you need context, it's the seventh Star Trek film, the first one with Patrick Stewart and the Next Gen Gang, and they team up with Kirk and the old gang. But anyway, there's this thing in Star Trek Generations called the Nexus, and it's its functions very similarly to the as does these illusions. And it, again, I, I it resonates with me too. As the older I get, the more nostalgic I get, and. There are times when, like, I just got back from a vacation with my family. I was chilling with Baby Hero and my mother, and it was just a very peaceful afternoon. Uh, Baby Hero is playing with a ball. My mother is around her. And I was thinking, like, this would be nice just to bottle up this moment in time and kind of live in this moment forever. Um, The Nexus in Star Trek Generations functions very similarly. And then I was thinking back to this scene as well um, when it was all going on. Of course, time keeps moving on. As I've taught my students for the last 10 years when I talk about Gatsby, you know, you'll try to get to that green light, but you're not going to get there. <laughs> yeah, I found these interesting because it was interesting to put this, um, this, and when I say this, I mean the uh, the jet fighter and uh, and Tori and their visions in contrast to what we had learned about uh, Soya, who has no memories and has sort of accepted it. I, I feel like those things I'm very much holding in my mind against each other in terms of you know how does one deal with personal trauma because if you accept that you know some amount of um you know acceptance i guess is maybe one way to put it like is are the aliens you know robbing you or are they persuasively helping you engage in some you know personal personal mental health you know because if you are sabotaging your life over or trauma or you're unable to process it that's a problem too um, so it's really, I don't know, I really enjoy thinking through these and, and kind of examining, like, you know, is is it is it an awful illusion that's trying to trick you? Or maybe do they have a point? Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I really, that's I think that's really insightful. Um, and I the show is going to explore that a lot. Um, and I just, I love the use of imagery in that scene because... Torai goes, it's it's almost dreamlike because Torai goes from being the child watching the house burning with his mother in it to being the firefighter who instead of saying, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do, he is the firefighter who rescues her at the same time that he is the child helplessly watching. So he did become a firefighter. He did kind of pursue that for a long time until he became... Um, one of the seven heroes, but he stopped that. He he stopped fighting fires to become a mech pilot. How he ended up there, I don't know. Often, or do when I know? podcasting with you, Caitlin, talk about like the intersection of firefighters and mecha pilots. It's true. It has happened again now. <laughs> two, we're two for two. We'll see. Uh, we- you know. We'll see if there's a third shot there that we can cover that explores uh, the similar, I guess, power structures. Pat Labor must have a firefighting labor somewhere in it. Like Maybe. it's got to. Yeah. Uh, I mean, does Fire Force have any mechs in it? I That's what know. I was Fire thinking, too. Fire Force is uh, some ups and downs. <laughs> now, to Hideo's credit, he breaks free from the illusion and defeats Peas, which then explodes into millions of pieces. Pieces. See what I did there, PMC? I, yeah, you're good. <laughs> Afterwards, he walks home, lost in thought, on an empty highway, where he runs into Sensei and Soya. Soya, who's wearing a visor, asks Hideo to hand over his source of power. Hideo refuses to comply. In response, 
Then say ingest Soya, a move which drops him into his stomach, aka the cockpit. Sensei then transforms into a giant giant feline mecha. Meanwhile, Hideo gets into his giant robot to defend himself. So each of the, these seven superheroes whom we'll learn are called the Grand Paladins, pilots a different mecha. So I really want to call out Sensei's design because I like it a lot. It has a lot of personality for what ostensibly is just a giant mecha cat, um, which you could find all around Japan, like in toy shops. But I think Sensei stands um, shoulders above the rest just because I feel like he has a lot of personality. I'm less taken with the Grand Paladin mechs. Like, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I think JC staff really knocked it out of the park when it comes to character designs and animation. The colors really pop, and I think the animation is very dynamic. But for me, the CG animation for the mechs leaves something to be desired. The designs all bleed together, and none of them really stand out. Uh, Hideo's Grand Paladin looks like a tiger. Um, Caitlin, you had a note about this. His name Torai. Uh, Tora means tiger. Hmm. I was thinking he's like fierce, maybe. Tigers, I guess, are fierce. I was stretching with no. that one. So I think it's more that, um, like any Sentai team or like any Tokusatsu mm. team, um, the Grand Paladins need a theme and their theme is animals. And maybe mm. there's some greater meaner, meaning to it, but I haven't really looked into the symbology. Now, I, I dig the Grand Paladins as people. Uh, like I said before, I'm less taken with the mechs, but PMC, you want to contest me on that? Yeah, I I kind of enjoy the ornateness of them. It draws okay. such a strong contrast between uh, everything else in the show, right? Because you have you have uh, Sensei, who I feel like is kind of a futuristic, uh, sleek, streamlined design. You have the... The uh, learn are called the the nebula weapons, the peas and and the friend from the next episode who are, I mean, arguably designed maybe thrown together on a napkin. <laughs> I mean, in fiction, in the fiction of it, perhaps. Um, but uh, so you, you get these, but you get these really ornate designs with a lot of uh, uh, various um, bits and bobs, and I like that it is b- true both on the exterior as well as the interior of the of the the mechs. I think that it certainly gives me an uh, an impression of a lot of like attention to detail and thought and and wealth and power. Uh, they're they're ostentatious, and I, I think you know it's they're meant to be that way. Also, I want to say that uh, in our history episode, it came up several times that Musikami during interviews would talk about searching porn sites, uh, and based on this anime, I'm convinced he knows what for is. Because I have no other way I can explain the storyboarding for how uh, how Soya gets into Sensei. <laughs> yeah, I'll agree with that. It hasn't come up <laughs> in any recent interview, though. Just a lot of... Um, uh, what's the... Uh, I just forgot the name. What's the uh, Switch fitness game that I own? Oh, Ring Fit. Ring Fit, yeah. He's Ring talking fit. about Ring Fit a lot. Yeah. But I mean, he, but in, like, in Spirit Circle, right? Like Part of the gimmick of Spirit Circle was that the two primary... like. Uh, inspirations were him doing the hypnosis and then also was like trawling porn websites, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Those are the two things? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Unless the regressive hypnosis was a bit, I'm not sure with Mizukami because <laughs> I feel like some, some of that, uh, like that, like sarcasm is lost in translation, but we'll never know. I keep adding him, adding him on Twitter uh, with my like history bits to see if he'll respond, but uh, no luck yet. 
Now, with the back-to-back deployment of Cat Punch, one of Sensei's special techniques, and a finishing move using a giant hammer, Soya defeats Hideo. Ginko then absconds with the source of Hideo's power, which he kept in a glass container he wore around his neck, and then he tosses it to Soya. When Soya holds the source of Hideo's power, he gets a glimpse of his past, proceeds to get angry, and then announces he's going to beat the crap out of all the Grand Paladins. The episode ends, and then cue the ending theme, which is Rainbow Planet by Mai Fuchigawa. PMC, hit us with that ending theme. All right, so I have the same thoughts uh, of the ending theme as I do with the OP. I think it's very serviceable, hits all the obligatory sad notes expected of an anime ending theme, but otherwise, I think it's pretty unremarkable. Does anyone want to argue with me about that? Totally agree. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, PMC, we haven't listened to, actually, we haven't watched a traditional episode of anime in a while, but we haven't listened, like, personally speaking at least, we haven't listened to an anime ending theme that has really taken me with a show we've covered. All right, so now we're teeing up episode two of Planet with PMC. Will you do us the honors of reading Crunchyroll's episode two summary? The first of the seven heroes is down, and Soya is eager to taste his victory katsudan. Could it be delicious pork or perhaps chicken? At last, meat. But then he finds out it's vegetarian katsudan. I'll say... Anime humor when it comes to food often doesn't land with me. I think I find it very endearing, but it's not laugh out loud funny. But a lot of the beats regarding like meat or the lack of meat in this episode made me laugh. It reminds me of a bit from the Cowboy Bebop movie early on when Spike is talking to Jet about the food they've been eating. And of course, Jet says they haven't been making enough money to buy uh, nicer food that has meat in it. And Spike has a really good line. I can't, I can't quote it verbatim, but... It just reminds me, like, just he's very sad that his food has no meat in it. And, of course, I think Soya can agree with that statement. You know, if I were forced to become vegetarian, I would probably respond very similarly to the promise (laughs) of meat. Likewise. I just really like meat. I think what's funny, though, is that, like, normally I don't think by itself I would find it such a funny beat. Because, like, I don't know. I'm not, I kind of go either way. Like, I eat vegetarian stuff all the time i i I think tofu rules but also like the delivery the delivery in this show is so good that it truly doesn't matter what he wants he could want anything like he could want candy he could want you know a a rock it could be and it would still be funny i think it's just how good the timing is on everything yeah i think um part of the meat thing is not just the vegetarian thing um because the vegetarian diet has to do a lot with kind of the um the buddhist imagery in this show um there's a lot of buddhist philosophy in case you haven't figured that out yet but it is meat is kind of a luxury in japan it's not an everyday food for most people you know most 
you know, it's it's distinct from fish. And it seems like Zoya isn't getting fish either um, because he's eating vegetarian. But, you know, it's sort of the classic thing of uh, if you have a character who's broke, they'll be like, oh, meat. I want to eat meat. Um, you know, I just rewatched Honey and Clover recently, and that was like what the first episode was with, where where they were like, what? Someone brought food? A bunch of croquettes? That's good, but why couldn't you have brought us some meat? I'm now flashing back to Final Fantasy 15 when Ignis cooks up something very tasty and snaps his fingers. Mm-hmm. God, that that game is so good at food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, top tier food uh, in that game. That and 13 Our Sentinels t- PMC. <laughs> I Yakisoba Pond. 13 Sentinels. PMC was a known hater of 13 Sentinels. It's it's regrettable what they happened with that game. I don't 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 tell me anything. I'm not going to tell you um, anything. I you can you can make your own decisions about it. <laughs> I was a fan. PMC was n- not. <laughs> uh, well, we all know that PMC is a hater. So I do like yeah. hate. It's true. <laughs> all right. So episode two, Nebula soldiers. These seven superheroes convene after Hideo's defeat to plan their next moves. Even though Hideo lost his powers, he isn't kicked off the team. In fact, Takashi Rizuzoji, their leader, gives him a mission to investigate the local area in search of their enemy who might be lurking nearby. Hideo's teammates ask him to describe his attacker, but his memory is too hazy. Turns out, the visor Soya was wearing disrupts memory. So, I've seen JC staff, who we talked about extensively in our history episode, get a lot of shit in the wake of One Punch Man's poorly received second season. But I gotta say, I think the animation in Planet With, which came out the year before the second season of One Punch Man, is not only solid, but very inventive. I like the bit in the beginning, that's why I'm pointing it out here. Um, obstructing Ginkgo and Soya's faces using clip art to represent memory loss is really clever and also very funny. You know, I think the quality uh, that one studio puts out from year to year, or from series to series, can change very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, past f- performance is not indicative of future uh whatever um but because like uh the example that always comes to mind for me is studio dean which for a long time was kind of infamous for being having like no budget they're the series that did the higurashi ad or the studio that did the higurashi adaptations you know but then they also did showa genroku rakugo shinju which is one of the most visually stunning shows that i have ever seen and i will try to find a way to make you guys cover it um (laughs) it is about rakugo in the showa era cool but i'm sure you know i can find a way to make it about robots (laughs) it always is in the end always always is you know i wanted to just say i really loved the uh and it kind of starts here the bits about the comedic bit about uh, about Torai being like effectively dead to some of the characters, uh, it comes up a few <laughs> times. Obviously, it happens here when when uh, Takashi's like he's right here. Like, what? Why? Why are we talking about him like he's dead? Uh, it happens later too. I think during uh, during the fight with with me uh, me and Haru. Uh, but also, like, I just want to point out that I, I always kind of love the um, 
the idea of like the the non superpower character just getting like sent on a task. I always think of Togusa from Ghost in the Shell in that kind of situation. And Tarai is pretty much like already he like he just needs to grow out the mullet and he'll be Togusa pretty pretty effectively. <laughs> yeah, PMC uh, Ghost in the Shell has been in um, our respective spheres recently, right? With that PlayStation game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The PlayStation game and uh, and yeah, yes, yes. Not not to get this off topic here, but I was thinking about you when that news uh, hit Twitter. All right, I love these scenes. The scenes where it's just a bunch of people talking about like strategic shit around a table. Um, like we literally here get a lot of table setting for the show going forward. So we learn um, that they decide to call the massive weapons that appeared in the sea nebula weapons, so named because the Earth is under threat from aliens called nebula. The aliens on the ground are called nebula soldiers. Meanwhile, we learn this group of human defenders are called Grand Paladins, and they pilot psychokinetic mega-god photon armors, which is a mouthful, but it's very typical of the genre. Uh, You know, I I really like the ridiculous names here. They're hyperbolic enough to the point where I feel like Mizukami's having fun with genre conventions. And I love when people are sitting around a table talking about strategic shit, just top-tier shit. It's one of the reasons why I like kaiju films so much. So I agree. Mizukami is having a lot of fun with genre conventions here. A lot of them are tokusatsu conventions, uh, which I mentioned earlier. So for one thing, I love the mix between like the very bureaucratic-sounding names, <laughs> the Citizen Safety Center Special Defense Section, and then Grand Paladins. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it, the Citizen Safety Center sounds like a government bureaucracy. And then it gets to this this ridiculous name. But also, so, because in Tokusatsu, he's really kind of mixing up the good guy and the bad guy signifiers. Mm. Like, you know, you don't usually get, like, the Power Rangers, the Super Sentai team, sitting around a table and discussing strategies. Um, it's more reminiscent of, like... Um, when you get the villain standing in a mysterious room and one of, you know, all of the minions are standing off, you know, like out of sight in whatever, for whatever reason. And they're discussing their one uh, compatriot who was defeated. Um, That's a very like tokusatsu villain thing to do. But then (laughs) it turns out that uh, Terai is sitting right there. It's like, oh, Terai was, well, Terai was the weakest among us. No, he was actually the strongest. <laughs> oh, well, he was the strongest. He was the strongest and they beat him. Well, you're all like more or less equal. Yeah, 8%, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that scene was super funny, but um you know, they're they're very much the hero they're they're signified as the heroes in so many ways. They've got the cool mechs. They're fighting the the evil alien invaders, but they're also having this very toku villain scene. And meanwhile, Soya is kind of wondering, like, are we the baddies? Um, <laughs> it's it's very it's a very clever way. And once again, coming back to that efficiency um, of signifying that, like, good and evil aren't like super cut and dried here. There's no like it's not obvious who is the good guys, who's the bad guys. Is Soya are Soya and Ginko and Sensei the bad guys? I mean, not really. Um, because they don't have the bad guy signifiers, but also like these guys have a lot of both. Um, so yeah, 
it's really, really clever how Mizukami writes this scene and also just really funny. As I said, to invoke another, uh, for, to invoke Giant Robo again, of course, Giant Robo famously has the, uh, the you know, the, the, <laughs> the giant columns that they all sit on when the bad guys discuss things. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. which, which rules. And also, I, because I, I, now I'm just thinking of like, you know, one of the, what's the name of the bad guy organization? I was just going to ask you that too, because I think, um, I always think Big Venture Fire. Brothers, Big Fire. There you go. Big Fi- I can just imagine like a defeated Big Fire member, like stumbling and like, I'm okay. I'm still here. And like, no, they're not talking to him. <laughs> Mizukami could write the shit out of like a giant robo <laughs> manga. Kayla, I'm glad you could fill in some of those blanks for us when it comes to Tokusatsu, because I am a Toku novice. Uh, I want to get more into Toku. We have people whispering in our ear to watch some Tokusatsu shows, but I, I have very little experience with the genre. So the thing is that I do not watch Toku. Um, okay. I didn't even get into Power Rangers as a kid, and I was where in the target demographic mm-hmm. i was in first grade when that series first mm. came out in english yeah i was deep like, in that shit for sure <laughs> i am not a toku person in any sort of way but i am married to one <laughs> and i am married not just to a toku fan but i'm married to a toku fan who loves to talk and he loves to tell me about toku and because we watch anime that play on toku tropes He's always very ready to kind of explain to me, like, what is being signified there. Like, and you see a lot, like, the the toku genre plays into anime a lot. I mean, Sailor Moon is basically a toku series, right? So I've picked up a lot. Um, being married to my husband is basically a very long-running, like, 101 course in toku <laughs> <laughs> series and i and i and i love him and honestly it's become pretty useful knowledge he tried to make me watch common rider ooze but it didn't stick has he watched any planet with oh yeah we watched it together what is is he equally as positive on the show as you are oh yeah nice i mean maybe not as much but that's because i'm like wild so wild about it um if they had more merch of it, I would definitely, like, I don't buy a lot of merch, but I bought a Soya keychain because that was one of, like, five Planet With things available. And it broke. My oh. boy. My poor boy. Um, But, yeah, no, we, we watched it together. Um, We enjoyed talking about it together. And now that we're, I'm watching it for this, um... We are enjoying talking about it together again. Very cool. So the Grand Paladins, they're almost done this meeting, and when they wrap up the meeting, they decide to split into pairs for safety's sake. After they all leave, Takashi looks out the window and makes the obligatory cancel the apocalypse declaration. I gotta say, like, I I agree with you all about the Grand Paladins. Um, I I do worry, we we talked about the Briss pacing and planet with is only 12 episodes and i i worry that means we're not going to get a lot of interactions between minor characters which for me is a catch-22 because narrative bloat we talked about persona 5 earlier but narrative bloat is an issue with anime and jrpgs and the grand paladins seem like a fun group and i kind of want to see what they're up to when they're not on the clock and i worry we're not really going to get much of those scenes and that bums me out just a little they do a lot with a little 
that's good. That, I'll just say, like, they they managed to do a lot with a little. I feel like that statement can sum up Mizukami's work as a whole in a positive way. He does a lot with a little. Mm-hmm. Also, shout outs to having an old guy on the team um, and making said old guy uh, Takazo be Takahashi, Takashi's dad is a really fun twist. Um, this is the part I laughed the most in episode two. Like his off screen joke about steak, which blunts the seriousness of Takashi's speech, and then cutting to the next scene right as Takashi is about to drop an F bomb is great comedic timing. Um, I talked about Mizukami's this humor. It's a subtitle talked- joke. Oh, is it? Yeah. Very good. Um, I mean, the, the thing he was going to yell is like very typical, like rough speech for like, um, you know, stop messing around, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see it translated in a variety of ways, but like, don't fuck with me is definitely one of the things. It, <laughs> it's because it's rough speech, so people tend to drop swears in it sometimes. Mm-hmm. I have a, trans- a translation to it. I guess this, as someone who, who watches, you know, who watches some anime or and plays some Japanese video games, uh, there's the one phrase that I feel like I, I encounter a lot and I have started writing down the translations for, and this is not going to be a surprise to anyone is Yare Yare, which like, <laughs> I just have like a collection of translations for, um, there is of course, good grief, uh, in this show. Oh dear. Uh, my all time favorite is, a, is from, from Yakuza zero where they translated as some fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> which is really really good and i assume of course there's good reasons that you know the, the folks doing the work are making those decisions to put it in the subtitles differently uh but i just love that you know there's so much going on there that folks arrive you know at all these different phrases which i'm i'm sure are you know communicating what the character is saying um if you're i mean if you're interested in kind of learning about translation um i recommend um I, there's uh, Katrina Leonod. I don't know if I'm going to be saying her name correctly. Leonodokus. Um, it is a Greek name, so I will send you mm-hmm. her at on Twitter. Um, and she talks a lot about like trans. She's a translation uh, translator. She has a master's in translation science. She's a really uh, good re- resource if you're interested in kind of translation. But the thing is that you know. Japanese and there's so many fights about translation and like how translation should be done. But, you know, language is not plug and play. Um, You can't just substitute one word in for the next or like one grammatical structure in for the next. So a phrase like yada yada does a or I just yada yada that can that conveys a particular emotion, but doesn't have like any like one to one words. Um, especially, um, translator, like you maybe would be able to be like, Oh, Jesus Christ. But translators don't want to put that into the words of Japanese characters because like, that's not going to be something that a Japanese person would say generally. Mm -hmm. So it, they find context appropriate ways to, to translate it. Um, honestly, if it weren't a legacy translation, um, doing the good grief Jotaro mm-hmm. in yeah. in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, saying good grief would might sound pretty sim- silly, but that's the translation we're used to. So 
to go on this tangent because like i love translation as an art um one of my like probably one of the most influential teachers to like who i have become um my ninth grade um english teacher uh mrs ordonia did a whole unit on translation as an art she's also the one who taught us about like media literacy and um kind of digging under the surface of like what they're saying in the media like she, she great great teacher wish i did better in her class <laughs> if i if i were to get like a nebula weapon vision it would me being actually <laughs> sitting down and doing my homework <laughs> um but yeah so translation is really cool um and it's it's really fun seeing kind of how different things go but there's a lot of people out there who who are really insistent that like it should be one-to-one um that you take the japanese words and you translate them into english words and everyone who actually works in translation who actually speaks japanese is like but you you can't (laughs) language doesn't work that way but you know yeah it is what it is. Um, that was a tangent. Caitlin, I want to shout out one of your all-time best tweets where you have pinned your account. People <laughs> who say translation should be one-to-one literal as possible probably don't season their food. Well, because, you know, if you, trans- if you translate one-to-one, that's the only way to get, like, um, the real Japanese meaning, right? And the only way to really taste the original way to your food... Uh, the the original flavors of your food is if you don't add any seasoning, right? 100% agree. <laughs> now, the next day during breakfast, Soya sulks as a news bulletin recaps the events of the first episode. Soya announces that he isn't going to school, a decision Sensei disagrees with. Soya lashes out, criticizing Ginko and Sensei for using him as a weapon. This status quo really fascinates me. I haven't watched ahead. I'm only I've only watched the first two episodes, but I there are so many layers to the power dynamics here and so many unanswered questions. Like do Sensei and Ginko care about Soya? I think so personally. Or are they merely using him as a tool? Are the Grand Paladins the villains? What did Soya see in that vision? And to what lengths is he willing to go to get revenge? And like why does he want revenge in the first place? Um there are so many reasons that I want to continue watching the show, but also just for me, like merely plot reasons, I'm very curious for answers to these questions. I do really appreciate that Soya gets memories back, uh, but then like keeps them to himself. It's sort of a, a, like a great moment of, I don't know, privacy for the character. Like I kind of appreciate that he's playing things close uh, because you know, everyone else is. And so I, I, it sort of empowers him in, in my eyes, uh, which I like. Soya storms off. Ginko attempts to calm him down. Soya then walks in on Sensei pleasuring himself and announces he's going for a walk, but really he is going to train. So I'll say this about this scene. While it's a low bar to clear, as far as self-gratification scenes in Mecha goes, we've got Shinji in End of Eva, Table-kun in Code Geass. I think Sensei's is the funniest. The, the cat-specific animation, like his tail vibrating when he's discovered, I, fa- I thought it was hysterical. I think calling it self-gratification is a little bit, (laughs) like, if you haven't watched the series, he's not, like, touching himself. He's just getting a little too excited looking at (laughs) figure's underwear, just to be clear. I read that in the notes, and I was like, wait a second. (laughs) 
I don't remember this. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the it's the pet version of getting too excited, and like the the cat dog version of of being very excited is not, you know, the uh, for whatever feature Sensei has, he is being more of a cat in this moment. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. I guess that's more of me for where my mind was going. <laughs> Now, while taking a breather, Soya runs into Hideo, who sits next to him on a bench. Soya is transfixed on the snacks he's carrying, while Hideo asks him questions, unaware of his identity. You know, I, had, I had a question about kind of the, the run-up to this scene, literally, which is, what's, what's the deal with the clogs? Is that like a, is that a thing? Is that, well, iron, iron, is, like, is there a reference I'm supposed to be picking up here? I, I, I don't think it's a direct sure. reference, but I thought Gunbuster immediately. Okay. Iron shoes just seems like very specific. Weights on. Yeah. Okay. I was curious if there was anything in particular. Kind of like a Looney Tunes gag with the piano or something like that. <laughs> like a, a universal item to represent something. Acme brand iron shoes. <laughs> or whatever the planet with equivalent is. I, I like the conversation they have. Like, it's only a single line of dialogue, but Hideo's revelation that he saw Soya crying hits harder for me than actually seeing him cry. Because it's left to our imagination, and imagining Soya alone crying, dealing with all the trauma of losing his parents and memory, navigating a new school, and being manipulated by two weirdos really hits home. Relatable situation for you. <laughs> However, they don't have um, long to. Ch- oh, go on, Galen. Uh, yeah, no, like. You can really feel the weight that's on Celia's shoulders right now. We don't know what he saw, but you know he's he's talking about avenging someone. What what is what is happening? I mean, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I also really like this scene because, like, you can see that Torai is really a, just a very genuinely kind person. He sees this kid in the park crying when he should be in school, and he just sits down next to him and is like, hey, what's <laughs> what's up? But they don't have long to chat. Another evacuation order sounds off. A new nebula weapon has appeared over the ocean. Hideo runs off. Soya jumps into action. I'm not, I'm not going to, in every episode, I'm not going to call out every joke that I found funny, but in this episode, I will. Bean paste joke is very funny. Not to continually bring up my honeymoon, but I was really excited to try red bean paste before going to Japan. We ended up running into a vendor in Akihabara selling Magikarp-shaped cakes. You know, if, for those of you who don't know, the, the Pokemon, the iconic Gen 1 Pokemon. And it was filled with bean paste, and I tried it, and I hated it. So uh, Soya's reaction of disgust is the correct one. PMC is uh, does not agree with me. No, look, I don't know for certain that the bean paste products that are available in Asian markets in New Jersey are identical to the ones in Japan. Maybe, maybe not. Who can say? But I think red bean paste flavor is good. I also feel like in the in the animation there, it looks more purple. It looks more like maybe an ube product, which would be okay. even more delicious. No, that's Anko. That's it Anko. It? Oh, it's Anko? It is Anko? Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. Anyway, also still good. I actually, I'm gonna, I, I, will, I will send you a photo because I have been having toast with Anko paste on it every night for like two weeks now. Okay. Literally, actually, I will send a picture of it later <laughs> just to prove my point. So, uh, I don't know. It's bean paste is good. And I think, I think that Soyo should be more appreciative of the bond that Torai shared with him. Kaylin, you want to be the tiebreaker <laughs> here? 
Okay. Here's my my hot uncle take. It's fine. <laughs> I'll eat it. Um, right if you give it to me, I'm usually not going to go for it. If uh, I'm picking stuff out at the store, um, the joke is that my taste in desserts is very white. <laughs> um, I usually go for cho- the chocolate, maybe a fruit flavor. Generally not going to go for the Anko or the Ube or the matcha. But, you know, my it's okay. My wife is obsessed with all three of those flavors. So they're in the house all the time. I like them. <laughs> okay, so it's fine. Yeah, I'm with Caitlin on this one. I kind of bounce off those. I like chocolate chips, please, and thank you. <laughs> the six remaining Grand Paladins. I guess it's not really. There's still seven Grand Paladins, but I guess one is not powered or not empowered. So the six empowered Grand Paladins fly off to face the threat. This time, it's a giant floating pig with a halo and the obligatory human appendages. On their way to fry up some bacon, the paladins discuss who should take the lead. Mew volunteers. I love the writing, because I think this time it's it's smile, but there's a one instead of an I, right? That's the, the English language goof. Yeah. It's very good. <laughs> Meanwhile, Soya, Ginkgo, and Sensei evaluate the situation from a distance. Soya asks them if these nebula weapons are theirs. Now, Ginkgo at this point provides some helpful exposition for both Soya and the viewers. Turns out, Ginkgo and Sensei are a part of Nebula, the alien force that threatens humanity. However, internally, opinions are divided on how to best deal with humans now that some of them, like the Paladins, are evolving at a faster rate. The Sealing Faction wants to keep humanity on Earth to prevent them from evolving further. They are willing to use force to limit human potential. The Pacifist Faction, on the other hand, which Ginkgo and Sensei are a part of, prefer to take a more passive approach, watching over humanity from the sidelines and occasionally intervening to confiscate that power. Now, this sort of existential dilemma, the ethics of imposing restrictions on an evolving species, comes up a lot in Mizukami's works. Volume 4 of Spirit Circle, which, uh, which I called out in the previous episode as my favorite volume, by the way, deals with issues of population control, euthanasia, things like that. Denizens of the Sand Planet, which we talked about in the history episode, it was this Trigun one-off that Mizukami wrote, also asked the question, should humanity be allowed to continue? And I think consistently, fortunately, Mizukami usually falls on the side opposed to authoritarianism, which uh, I guess big ups to Mizukami in that regard. Yeah, so this one, um, this we're kind of starting to get into why Planet With speaks to me, because... Um, this is a big theme um, about that I kind of deal with working in early childhood education. Mm. It is the belief that um, it is, it is not about whether people are inherently good or inherently bad. It is about the idea that with the right guidance, people and with, with the right sort of understanding of others, people will, you hope that people will make compassionate decisions, that they will make um, the right decisions. I work in a preschool that does anti-bias education. Um, so we're teaching children, mostly white children, mostly privileged children, because it is a pretty expensive preschool, um, about um, you know injustice in the world and about uh, you know, the, the conservatives uh, who yell about critical race theory would hate us um, because 
the belief is that we want, if we teach them the certain, a certain way that they can grow up to be kind, just human beings, it is um, the same as the belief that people are not inherently just criminals, that crime occurs as a result of uh, culture issues and injustice issues. Um, you know, it's the prison abolitionists. It is focusing on, uh, it is a belief that to repair problems and to prevent problems, you know, preventative measures are more powerful than punitive measures. And if you use the right preventative measures, you don't have to take away choices um, because you will be able to create a situation where you can trust people to make the right choices. So that really, so this is what about Planet With, um, part of what it, about it really speaks to me, um, is the sort of the fight between those two factions, the ceiling faction versus the pacifist faction. And it's hard because a lot of people out in the world are not making the right, the kind, the just, uh, choices, right? It, so it's a little bit hard to have, um, faith in humanity sometimes. So, yeah, so this is sort of dropping in, kind of answering a lot of the questions asked in the first episode, and it's a very powerful theme. Yeah, I was really excited to see this, to see this introduced and to, like, I love it. Okay, a conflict is good. You know, if it was just robots punching other things, maybe I could be excited about that, but to so explicitly upfront tie together the opposing factions and the stakes of the conflict uh, is just really, really invigorating for me because I, I, I get frustrated when I go into a story and there's a, a conflict, but I don't understand. I, I might understand the ideology of, for example, you know, video game, the player characters, but I don't understand the ideology of the opponent. And I, and I really want to engage with those things. Uh, I was in here in, you know, in, in this planet with series already, it is very upfront about, you know, what the uh, stated ideologies are, at least from, you know, uh, Ginko's perspective, and that rules. And, it, you know, it's it's a part of a thing that primes me to enjoy what is to come. Totally agree. There, There's a degree of nuance to the storytelling uh, that I appreciate. There's also a thread of empathy that runs through Mizukami's works that's present in Planet With that I, I very much appreciate. You know, Caitlin brought up Mecha shows post-2010. I think a lot of shows have this shared sense of empathy that a lot of Mecha shows maybe in the late 80s did not. There's there's a greater degree of militarism in those shows, and sometimes those shows complicate these notions of uh, military power, but not always. But I feel like there's been a shift away from that in the last 30 years or so, at least as far as the Mecha genre is concerned. One thing I noticed on Twitter when I was looking at people talking about Planet With was a lot of comparisons to Gurren Lagann. And maybe there are other reasons later on the show, but I immediately thought of the anti-spirals when I was watching the seams. They had a similar agenda, at least on a surface level, to the ceiling faction in Planet With. So we're nearing the end of the episode. Mew flies into the core and experiences an illusion not unlike Hideo's. In hers, she is sparring with Haru. Apparently, she's very self-conscious about her physical strength, or lack thereof as she sees it. However, she beats Haru and the two end the fight smiling. She concludes that it's okay to be weak, and overcomes Smiles' siren song. Just talking about the fight scene here, I think Tanaka's soundtrack does a lot of elevating work. The, the track that plays absolutely owns. Again, I'm, I'm a little lukewarm in the CG fights. I think they're all pretty forgettable. 
but I can't help but get so pumped when that finishing song plays. You know, I wanted to say I really appreciated the the range of kind of stories here. I, I think the uh, the first two stories involved uh, you know tragic loss, you know, as as Caitlin described earlier, and here we have um, something that is very different, but also every bit as relatable and sincere and heartfelt, which is the anxiety and self consciousness that uh, that Mew experiences about her physical strength, and so uh, I just you know to to see the pattern repeat, but also deviate and experience, you know, range and a, and a broad range of, of emotion uh, is also good. Yeah, no, I, I love that it is not about like a big personal tragedy, but like Mew is tiny. She's so small. She's so small and she's so fierce and she's so angry that she's small and that the small body has a hard time the being physically stronger than larger bodies because she really values strength. She is truly mad because small. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that meme, but <laughs> you know, I am, um, all of five foot four. Um, so I'm not tiny, but I'm not large. And I also just really want to throw down sometimes. <laughs> and it's just like, Oh, I'm only five foot four. I should not be challenging someone who's a literal foot taller than me. Um, especially since, um, as uh, in a, a great Tumblr post back in the day observed, um, tiny people, smaller people are a lot meaner than larger people generally. Uh, <laughs> not always, but generally you will find that um, the sm- in the general population, the smaller someone is, just the more absolutely angry and rage-filled they are. So yeah, I really in- enjoy Mew and and how her feelings are treated as valid, even if it's not some huge personal tragedy. I also like how heavily it is implied throughout this and the concluding fight in this episode that Haru hits like a truck. Like, do not mess with her. She will throw you. Well, I mean, she's tall. You know, you you see her. She is. She slouches down to make herself look smaller. But she's really tall. Um, so, you know, it's it's a little bit of a reversal of, like, Haru clearly wishes she were smaller. But she is large, and that gives her a lot of power. And Mew is tiny. And that is frustrating to both of them. They make such a good team, too. There's a sincerity to their friendship that I really like. Mm, a herald. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if it's actually canon confirmed, but it's pretty good. <laughs> Victorious, the Grand Paladins fly off into the sunset and disembark in pairs. Soya and Sensei approach Haru and Mew in the woods under the cover of night. Soya asks her to hand over her source of power. She refuses. They all get into their respective mechs. Haru and Mew, working together, put up a tough fight, but Soya lands a finishing move on Mew. I want to Sensei- I'm- I'm going to jump in here because I just wanted to highlight, I, you know, I think this is like my favorite fight so far, talking mm. about the, the CG mechs. Uh, I think I love it when CG mechs do mechanical things. I think that it is something that they generally excel at. And so the spinning move that, uh, that Amiya is doing, I think looks great. I think the way the sparks fly when it strikes Sensei is great. I think the way it's stopped by the hammer is a lot of fun. 
Uh, there's a lot. Uh, I think. Um, I think. Yeah. I, I think I like the CG stuff when it's really taking advantage of the kinetic qualities that are machine-like. I like Sensei's hammer too. Like Caitlin mentioned, merch earlier. There is some Sensei merch I would really like to get. I don't know if the action figure does have a hammer, but I think that'd be pretty cool if it did. That's something I'd want on my shelf. By the way, um, their names are also animal names. Mm. See, Haru is so Mew is. Um, Mew means wings, or the ooh in Mew means wings. Um, and Haru is, uh, her last name is Kumashiro, and Kuma means bear. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely a bear mech, for sure. <laughs> no, no kidding around there. Sensei, at this point, recommends they retreat. But Soya thinks he can take Haru. Before he has a chance to test that theory, the remaining Grand Paladins accompanied by Takashi, touch down and surround Soya. Don't underestimate humanity, Takashi tells Soya before the episode ends. Really baller line there. I mentioned Idris Elba's line from, oh man, what's the name? Pacific Escape Rim. Pacific Rim, Cancel the Apocalypse. Kind of reminds me of that, the spirit of that line. I will tell you, um, it is... Notice how Soya isn't really interested in fighting... Until he gets his into the heat of battle, um, once he feels the blood, kind of the blood pounding, and then he doesn't want to stop. Um, that is important. Um, that is foreshadowing. Very cool, Kaylin. What can we look forward to in the next two episodes? Do you remember? Uh, Not putting you on the spot here, know. or just the series in general. Um, I think we learn. In the next two episodes, you can look forward to the conclusion of the first arc. Uh, um, that is uh, the main thing I remember. Um, we meet the other faction. We meet the ceiling faction. And yeah, no, it, it wraps up the first arc in the first four episodes. Oh, I love that. And it does it great. Yeah, I'm really excited to see things constantly, like the status quo constantly evolve. Um, it, it's just, you know, especially after having read all six volumes of spirit circle, like I know that it's going to evolve in fascinating ways. Um, so that only, uh, you know, I, I know I, when I, cause I, I, someone mentioned, maybe I forget who, but that the, I think that the show is divided into three arcs is like three arcs, 12 episodes. Let's go. Mm-hmm. That, that's prime podcasting material. There's so many shows that we might cover or we, we kind of want to cover, but we don't want to be committed because the ep- like there are like 50 plus episodes and like no way because <laughs> that's like seven months of our time. But something like Planet With is so appealing on so many, so many levels. You're going to watch Ninja Robots, Ninja <laughs> Robots. I want to watch Ninja Robot just for that dub, the one that Disco Tech unearthed. <laughs> Incredible work, Disco Tech. <laughs> God bless. All right. So we reached the end of the episode. We're all psyched for what's to come. Caitlin, promote yourself again. You're watching, uh, you're podcasting with Anna Feminist about Kari Kana, right? That is what is currently coming out. Those episodes have all been recorded, long Very since cool. recorded. Um, we are going to be starting work on a Ray Earth um, uh. re- rewatch along. So it'll all be people who have watched Ray Earth, including Megan. Um, Giant Robot FM friend as well. Uh, Megan, I'm not sure which last name she uses online. Brainchild129. 
and Lindsay Loveridge of Anime News Network. So we're going to get started on that soon. I think actually I missed the day that we were supposed to start recording. Oops, I've been very busy. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, just continuing our seasonal coverage, continuing our articles. Feel free to pitch to us. We love pitches, even if we don't accept all of them. Um, and confirm. And yeah. Lovely people to work with. I've, I haven't written anything in ages because um, my schedule is too hectic, but loved working with the team at Anime Feminist for my Gurren Lagan article that's nearly two years old at this point. Yeah, so PMC. PMC, we have some plugs. Yeah, oh, we real have quick, some- Real quick before, so I've queued you up, PMC. I apologize. I wanted to ask you, Caitlin, Kari Kano, because I was a big, I watched it when it was, you know, his, his or her circumstances back when it was brought over to the States. Had, does it hold up well? I liked it back in the day. It's a... Uh... It's a complicated answer. Okay. Yes. If you watched it and you liked it before, I think it still holds up. Okay. Well, if you think Giant Robot FM holds up, then perhaps you would like to write nice things about us on your favorite podcatcher, like iTunes or Spotify or wherever. We love we love uh, that, that positive reviews, word of mouth, all those sorts of recommendations are very much appreciated. Uh, if you want to support us directly monetarily, there is a Patreon that we have, patreon.com slash giantrobotfm, where you can check out some supplementary materials. There is an exclusive Discord. We have various uh, supplementary podcasts. Uh, we do a series of podcasts about mecha video games, where we give mecha video games the same treatment that we give a mecha anime. We've covered the first three Armored Core games. Uh, we've got our pretty much our next two games in the pipeline, so we'll be working on a Zardion episode soon, uh, which will hopefully come out in, in the near future. We also have some of our podcasts where we just kind of talk about other things that we're looking into. Uh, our most recent B-Plots episode dropped, and it was me talking about Unimusha 3 and Steven talking about how he arranges his office. So, you know, if that sounds interesting... Uh, it's not as boring as it sounds. <laughs> I walk you through, like, my interior decorating philosophy, which mm-hmm. is very minimalistic, as you might expect. <laughs> And yes, yes, that is that is true, and you can see the wonderful things on his shelves. Uh, there was lots of visual aids for that one. Beyond that, you know, so again, check out Patreon.com/slash/GiantRobotFM if you want to check out that supplementary material. And we want to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics that we use, and credit to Fretzel hashtag Bane Fretzel for the music that we use. All right, wrapping things up. Red bean paste is it good? Is it bad? Who can say? <laughs>